I uh, am honored I get the opportunity to share with you all this morning. Before we jump into things, though, I want to take just a quick moment and and just say to Pastor Rick again, thank you for the last, you know, close to nine years. It it truly, um, I've learned a lot. You've invested in me and poured into me, and I'm forever grateful for that. I I literally cannot put it into words and thank you enough. would not be doing what I'm doing or stepping out and taking this next leap of faith if it wasn't for you. And um, I've relied heavily on you and your shoulders for the last eight and a half years, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for you, though, and thank you for just who you are and what you stand for and just pouring into not just me, but this incredible community and the people that are here. And so we love you. Can we give it up for Pastor Rick? Just let him... Well, as Pastor Rick said, I'm going to get the opportunity to share with you, and I want to start off by just sharing with you that June 8th of 2008 is a day that I will never forget. That was the day that I had my story-changing moment with with God. I was passing a kidney stone. Come on now. I mean, you know, that'll change your life right there. You will get right with Jesus super fast when you have one of those. Um, But I was on my bathroom floor. And I remember being in that moment and I was just like, God, if you will take this pain away from me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And literally in that moment, I had a no-so experience with God. I heard God speak to me and he said, Michael, I love you and I've called you and my life has never been the same since. Like I went from being, yeah, we can give it up for you. But literally in that moment, my life was radically changed. I went from being somebody that never opened the Bible to I couldn't put it down. I continued to read it all the time. I went from a guy that never talked to God to talking to God. I went from a guy that literally lied to my parents, pretended to be sick, made up lies about the church just so I wouldn't have to go to church. And that's who I was at that time to a place where you could not keep me out of church. The church that I got plugged into after I gave my life to Jesus, after I had that story changing moment with him, we had church Sunday morning, Sunday night, we had Wednesday night service, and then we had prayer meetings on Thursday nights at like six o'clock. And I would was there any single time that the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Thursdays. Now, let me tell you something about our Thursday night prayer meetings. It consisted of me, 20-year-old Mike Capel, and then six to eight 50-plusers at that point in time, okay? Now, I know when you think about this small group that's meeting to pray, I was the odd one out. Like, I did not fit in with this crowd. I mean, again, I'm 20, they're 50 plus, uh, completely different seasons of life. I shared this during the first service, but to give you an idea, like, they're praying about their colonoscopy appointment, and I'm praying that Jesus doesn't come back before my wedding night. Come on, if you know what I'm saying. Like, completely different frame of mind and world and just completely different outlook on life, right? And and I say all that, though, to say this, that I loved those Thursday night prayer times because I got to go and build a relationship with some people that were farther along in the journey than I was. 
And those older people begin to pour into me and they help me develop and grow in my relationship with God and I am forever grateful for them. Matter of fact, I brought you a couple pictures of a couple of these, these people that are dear to me. If we can put the first one up, uh, Sister T. This is Sister T. Sister T was an amazing woman of prayer. And there'd be times on those Thursday nights where I would be praying and everybody's praying and she would come up to me and she'd kind of get this look on her face like, what's God speaking to you about? What's going on in here? And I'd begin to tell her and she'd say, that's God right there. That's God speaking to you about this. Like, let's, come on, keep praying that out. What, what is it that God's stirring? That's, that's the voice of God in your life. And she taught me how to hear God's voice for myself. And, and then there was another man, if we can show that picture. This is Brother Fred. Brother Fred was literally like a walking Bible. And I would read my Bible all throughout the week. I'd hear things in messages, and then I'd come and I'd talk to him, and I'd be like, hey, I read this the other day, and you're going to have to explain this one to me. Like, I, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And then he would sit down with me, and he would open up his Bible, and he'd say, well, see, here's what it says right here. And this tells us that your old life is gone and that you're a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. And those things that you were struggling with in your past, see, according to this verse, you no longer have to struggle with those things anymore because Christ has called you out of those things. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. And matter of fact, you don't have to worry because you can pray and you can go boldly into the throne room of God and, and talk to him at any mo moment and any time because you have that relationship with him now. And he just would open up scriptures and begin to pour into me and he just invested in me. And what I love about this and looking back on it is just because, again, completely different seasons of life. Worried about completely different things, but these were two people that became some of my most valued relationships because they took time out of their world and they poured into me and it helped me to grow in my relationship with God. Now I realize that this morning that there's people sitting in this room right now and just as I'm talking about these dear older people to me, there's people that are coming to your heart right now that you're remembering and being like, yep, I had me a brother Fred. Yeah, I had me a sister T. They poured into me. They invested into me. It was a coach. It was a mentor. It was a teacher. It was uh, another family member. It was whoever. And you're thinking and you're beginning just on the inside to celebrate because you're like, yes, I had that. But I also realize that there are people here this morning that you didn't have a brother Fred or a sister T. And right now you're even like, man, I wish I would have had one of them. Because if I would have had a brother Fred or a sister T, I, would have, I could have saved myself from a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of trouble, and a whole lot of regret. And here's what I want you to know. No matter where your background is, no matter what you came from, I just want you to know this, that there is a generation that is coming up that desperately needs somebody that's a little bit further ahead of them in this journey of faith that is willing to look back and take time out of their world and say, hey, come on, let me sit down with you. Let me point out the voice of God to you in your life. That's God speaking to you that, that is willing to sit down and say, hey, you got questions about the Bible? Let's sit down and let's have a conversation about it. Matter of fact, let's figure this thing out together. I'm not just going to preach to you, but I'm going to show you some scriptures that line up with your questions, and I'm going to help open up God's word and just begin to explain it to you in a way that you can understand in this next generation, these middle schoolers, these high schoolers, these college age students, they desperately need people 
people that are further along in the journey that are willing to step out and look back at them and say, hey, come on, let's do this. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about reaching this next generation where they are. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to start in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We know in Exodus chapter 1 that, you know, Pharaoh, uh, a new Pharaoh has risen up and is now the king over all of Egypt. And we know that the Israelites are living there and they are rapidly multiplying and growing. And as a result of this, Pharaoh issues this, this rule and this decree that all of the newborn babies that are males are to be thrown into the Nile River. In other words, they're to be murdered at birth. To, and he's doing that to try to keep the population of Israelites from growing. And we get to Exodus chapter 2 and in verse 1, it says this. It says that about this time, when this order has been given by Pharaoh, about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And this is the verse that I want you to focus in on. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. Now, we know how the story unfolds, that this baby is actually Moses, and Moses grows up, and he's not murdered or anything like that, and he goes on to lead the children of Israel out of slavery from Egypt and from Pharaoh. But what I want to focus on is this fact that Moses' mother looked at him and saw something special about him. Now, here's the thing. I personally don't believe that when Moses' mom saw him, that there was anything physically different in Moses compared to the other male babies that were being born at that time period. And one of the reasons that I believe that is because if you continue to read Exodus chapter 2, we know that Moses' mom placed him in a basket, you know, and laid him down in the river. And at that point in time, that Pharaoh's daughter came down and discovered him and everything. And there's nothing in Scripture at that moment from Pharaoh's daughter that points or tells us that he was different than any of the other babies that were male that were being born at that time period. So I don't believe that Moses was physically different than all the other males. So, but yet she saw something special in him. So does that mean that like, okay, God created Moses on like a whole other level than the rest of the other babies? And I don't believe that to be true because that doesn't line up with scripture because scripture is very clear that we are all created in the very image and likeness of God, which means we're all unique, that we all have our own specialness to each and every single one of us. And so it's not like Moses is on a different level as a baby. And so what I want you to consider is maybe there wasn't a difference in Moses from the other ones, but maybe there was something different about Moses' mom that helped her to see something special in her child. That in that moment that she was willing to go against the king's order and against the king's decrees when all the other women at that point in time were saying, hey, here's my baby. So the question becomes then, well, what is so different about Moses' mom? Now again, I love the Bible. I love scripture. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, tells us something about Moses' mom and Moses' dad in this moment that I think separates them from the others. Hebrews chapter 11 is considered the faith hall of fame in, in Scripture. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. And say it with me. 
It was by what? Faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. It was by their faith that they were able to say, you know what, I don't care what the king says. There is something special about this boy. Matter of fact, it goes on to say that they saw that God had given him an unusual child and they were not afraid to disobey the king's commands. And that thing that they had was faith. You say, well, Pastor Mike, what is faith? Again, I love scripture, okay? Go back 23 verses to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It tells us clearly what faith is. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, that faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things, guess what, we cannot see. In other words, faith is that thing that allows you to see your natural circumstances and it allows you, it gives you that hope to say, you know what, there's something different in this situation. That there is a hope, that there's something special, that there's something unusual about this. Now think about Moses' parents. Again, it says that they got married, right? So they're newlyweds and then they find out that they're expecting. And can you imagine that nine months? God, please help it to be a girl. I don't want to throw my boy into the Nile. God, I don't want to have to do this. I know the king says this. I know everybody else is doing this. I know our culture right now is taking all the males and, and throwing them into the river. But God, please help it to be a girl so I don't have to do that. God, please. And they're all excited. They get to that day. It's time for their baby to be born and they discover that they have a boy. And then they're faced with a decision and they can either go along with what culture is saying in that moment. Or they can say, okay, God, we're going to put our faith in you. And I know that you're going to help me to see this whole situation, this circumstance differently than what it actually is. And as faith rose up on the inside of them, they were able to look at their baby boy and say, I don't care what Pharaoh says about them. Guess what? I have faith in God in, in, because of my faith in him. Guess what? There's something special that's going to happen with this little boy. That there is a future and there is a destiny in store for him that God wants to do something incredible in him. And guess what the world and culture wants to say about the next generation, of this generation of middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students coming up. The world wants to look at this generation and completely look at them like they are a lost cause, that they will never hold a stable job, that they are just going to live on y'all's living room couches till they're 45 and so on. And they're just going to take over, that they're never going to be able to support themselves. And what the world and what culture is trying to tell us, that they are hopeless, that they have so much anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts, that they are now literally crippled to the point where they cannot function. What society and culture is trying to tell our world is that this next generation is never going to amount to anything, that the world is in trouble, that this country is in trouble because there's not going to be anything good that's going to
going to come from them, but I'm telling you, as a church, if we're going to reach this next generation, it's time for us to put some faith into us and look at this next generation and begin to say, you know what? I know that the world is writing you off and they don't see some things in you, but I see some things in you that are different from the rest of the world, that you are in fact special, that you have gifts and talents and abilities that you can go out and God can use you to reach your friends and to change your world and make this place better than it is. Come on. Now, I'm going to brag on Cedar Point students for just a little bit, okay? But I love them. So here at Cedar Point, and listen to this full statement, we don't do student ministry for students. The world will look at it and be like, oh, it's so cute. You have student ministry. That's awesome. But we don't do student ministry for students. What we do here at Cedar Point students is we do ministry with students. And it is completely different. And what we do in our mindset here is we look at students and through the eyes of faith and we say, hey, you've got gifts, you've got talent, you've got ability, you're a leader, come on alongside us and help us to make a difference in this world. I loved it this morning because over here on this side leading worship was Riley Renfro. Riley started leading worship when she was a high school student in student ministry. And as a result of that, she, her talents and her gifts developed. And now she's using that on Sundays to bring people into a story changing relationship with Jesus. Come on. Back here on the drums was Tate Marshall. He's a high school student, phenomenal drummer, but what's he doing? He's using his gifts and his talents and his ability to change people's stories. Back in the back, back there, we have Ryan Brewington. He's running the soundboard right now, okay? A high school student running sound. Other services that we've had, we've had middle or high schoolers running our lights, helping with worship up here. If you go into our preschool ministry, our children's ministry, guess what you're going to find in there? You're going to see high schoolers and middle schoolers using their gifts and talents through the eyes of faith to make a difference in somebody's world. This whole section of students right here, a lot of them serve next service in our 1202 service over in Cedar Point Kids. And this is what we are about here is we're not about just riding the next generation off. We're going to look at them and say, hey, I see things in you that the world does not see and there is something special and unusual in you and we're going to use that to reach people for Jesus. And so for those of you that are taking notes, if we're going to reach this next generation, here's what we've got to do first and foremost is it's going to require us to see what the world does not see. It's going to require us to see what the world does not see. And to look at them through the eyes of faith and say, hey, there's something different. There's something special in them. They can change the world. They can make a difference. They got talent. They got gifts that God's entrusted to them. They know how to talk to the next generation. They know how to use social media. Come on. Get a message out there. They can do things and figure out things. It's amazing what they can do with technology. But yet we'll say, ah, we don't need you. World's falling apart. But that's not who we are. Let's go on to the next point. If you would go with me to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. At this point in time, Moses has died and his assistant that was younger than him 
Joshua is now taking over. So you had Moses going to the next generation and leading them. And now Joshua is in charge and he's about to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And Joshua goes to the priest at that point in time and he says, hey, I want you guys to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And I want you to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and I want you to lift it up. And then I'm gonna ask that you go and step foot in the Jordan River. And what God is telling us is that the moment your foot touches the water, the river is gonna stop flowing. It's gonna block it up like a wall and we're gonna go across on dry ground. And then he's telling the Israelites to get ready for this. And he's saying, hey, when we enter into the land, guess what it's time for? It's time for us to go and take the land. It's time for us to go and conquer. And God's going to go before us. And he's going to drive out all of the, the people that are before us in that moment. And he's telling them about what's about to happen. And it says this in Joshua chapter 3, verse 14. It says, so the people left their camp to cross the Jordan. And the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. So you have a group of people leading an entire new generation. It says that it was the harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing at its banks. So this isn't just a normal river crossing. This is like an overflowing river crossing at this moment. This is truly the worst time of the entire year to try to cross this river. But as we saw and as we heard earlier from Pastor Rick, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but God's a big God. And it doesn't matter how big the river is. It doesn't matter what stands in front of you. That when God's on your side, he'll go before you and he will prepare a way and make a way even when it doesn't seem like there's a way. And keep, this, um, and keep that in mind. But it says this. But as soon as the feet of the priest who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up at a great distance great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. And then all of the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. So here's what's interesting. You have the priests. They go in and it says that the water began to back up at this town called Adam and that they crossed there at Jericho. And according to archaeological maps and stuff, these two towns were roughly approximately uh, where this crossing took place from this town was approximately 20 to 30 miles away that the water became dammed up and stopped to flow at that particular moment. So imagine, here they are, they're looking at this, and no matter how far upriver they look, they still don't see any water. They just see it stop flowing. And then as they look down the downstream, they see the river just continue to flow into the Dead Sea. And everywhere that they look, they're like, there's no more water here. And they're seeing this incredible move of God. And then when they get down to the river and they go to put their foot in, they're like, hey, that's not mud at all. <laughs> that's dry ground. Come on, let's go. And they enter into the promised land that way. But what I want you to realize is that God couldn't move in that situation. He gave them the word. He gave them the command to go and take the ark and lead the way and then to step foot in the water and that when that would happen. But it took the priest first acting in a simple act of obedience and demonstrating that for the move of God to take place. And if we're going to reach this next generation, the second thing that it's going to require out of us is it's going to require us to demonstrate an obedience to the Lord. 
And this is where things are getting really lost. Because everybody's real good on the message of, oh, Jesus loves me and he saved me and he's forgiven me of all my sins. But there's a whole nother message with it. That when you confess Jesus as Lord of your life, it's no longer your thoughts, your opinions, you do what you want to do. But there is a following and an obedience that follows with that to say, God, I'll do what you want me to do when you want me to do it, however you want me to do it, no matter what it costs me. And that message, that message is being missed. And it's going to take us as a church rising up and saying, hey, guys, come along with me. And guess what? When it gets to that tough moment where we're going to have to step out in faith, we're going to be obedient to God and we're going to do our part. And when we do our part, guess what? God is faithful and he's going to come through on his end and he's going to provide and he'll go before you and he'll work. And it doesn't matter how big the river might be. It doesn't matter that there may not look like there's a way because God is on your side. If you will be obedient to the word that he has given to you and placed in your heart, God God will come through because he is faithful. And it's going to take us saying, come on, and I'm going to demonstrate for you what obedience looks like. Now, this next generation, we have to show them that. We have to show them what that faith in God looks like. That, hey, you can look at things through your natural eyes, but that doesn't matter if you've got faith in God. Can... I'll just be real honest with you. This next generation, they desperately want what's real. They see through fake so fast. Like they, they just pick up on their, like, I don't know. It's like a sixth sense with middle schoolers and high schoolers that if you're being fake and phony, they're just like, yeah, you're not real. They are craving something real. And they desperately want to see a move of God. But here's what it's going to take. It's going to take us saying, okay, God, what, what, what do you want us to do? Oh, you want me to take my responsibility and pick up the ark? Okay, I'm going to do that. God, you want me to walk up to this river and step out in faith and let my foot touch the water and just keep on walking and let you dry it up? Okay, I'll do it. It's going to take us demonstrating that. And then lastly, you know what it's going to take? find it interesting that the priests stood there in the river while everybody else passed by. And it's going to take us being a willing group of people to just stand firm and push them to the front and say, hey, there's the promised land. Go get it. Go conquer it. Go take the land. And here's what will happen as we do those things. The faith of the next generation will rise up and they will go out and conquer land. If you continue to read in the next few chapters, next several chapters of the book of Joshua, you find that that next generation, when they entered into the land, they encountered Jericho and they were like, hey, this ain't no big deal. Seven days, we got this. And then from there they went just literally from place to place and battle after battle and God was faithful to them and they just continued to operate in faith and conquered whatever was in front of them. And it was the faith, I believe, of those priests that encouraged the faith of the next generation after them to step out and continue to follow after God and be obedient to him. And that's what we're called to do. That's what our responsibility is as the older generation is to step out in obedience to God and inspire the next generation to say, hey, we can do this too. Guess what? They did this, but they, you know what? They just crossed a river. We're going to take the land. <laughs> like, and, and it's going to take us being willing to do that with them. Now, here's the thing. When we demonstrate that to them, 
their faith is going to rise up. And they're going to begin to build their whole entire lives on the foundation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says something that, that I think is just super powerful. But he says, anyone who hears my teachings and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds their house on the rock, right? That when the rains and the floods and the storms come, guess what? Because their house is built on rock, they'll be left standing. And then he follows that verse immediately up and tells us what happens when people don't build their life upon him. And he says, those that build their house on the sand or don't, who hear my teaching and don't follow it are like fools, that they build their house on sand. And when the rains and the floods and the waters come, that when those things come, their house collapses and it ends up washing away. And Jesus taught that, hey, we're all gonna face it, but here's the difference between this group of people and this group of people is their fact that they heard the teachings and followed it, that they were obedient to it, that the obedience was the difference in the two of them. And here's what it's going to take. This is the last thing, is that if we're going to reach this generation, it's going to require us to fight for their foundation. It is incredible to be a youth pastor and see what this next generation is struggling with and dealing with. I literally for the longest time felt so unequipped to deal with it to the point where I was like, God, you're going to have to bring somebody else in here because I can't do this. There was a period of time, I had six Wednesday nights straight where I was having to call and make a report to the police and DHS because kids were being abused at home. There was a time that we used to run a bus ministry out to Vertigris and one Wednesday night we're picking up a student and the person that's driving the bus calls me and they're like, hey, I'm not sure really what to do if you want me to pick up the student or not, but... Literally, they're sitting on their front porch and they're in seventh grade drinking a beer right now because their parents think it's okay. And when you look at statistics of what the first, the age of a, of a young person's first sexual encounter is, it would blow your mind at how young it's taking place. That with culture right now, it's not just drinking, but it's other things and it's becoming worse and it's running rampant the things that they're dealing with, the things that they're struggling with. And on top of that, what the world is telling this next generation right now about the church, the world's telling this next generation, hey, that God's not good. The world's telling this next generation coming up that, you know what, church is just full of a bunch of overrated hypocrites that just want to point their finger at you, tell you what to do. The world's telling the next generation that this book is just like any other book, that the words in this book can't change your life, that the main character of this book is nothing special. He's just some man. 
It's going as far as to telling the rest of the, the world's telling the church and this next generation that, you know what? You don't need church. You can stay home. It's going on as far as to tell the world that, hey, you know what? All that matters is how many views something has, is how many likes something has. And if it's got the most views and it's got the most likes, then it's the thing that everybody likes to hear. And so that's what you should believe and that's how you should do your life. And culture is telling this next generation that you just do whatever makes you happy. It's telling this next generation that you don't have to be planned. You don't have to be committed anywhere. But we as a church and as a student ministry, we're stepping up and we're fighting culture constantly. And we are committed here to making sure that this is a place that students, this next generation can come to and be planted and hear the word of God being taught with truth. And it is so incredibly important that there's a group of people that's behind us and what we're endeavoring to do that's there to support, that's there to come alongside and say, hey, I got your back. I know you can't reach them all, so I'm gonna reach these 10 and I'm gonna take these 12 and I got these five and we're gonna make sure that they get planted and we're gonna fight and make sure that their foundation is built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that, hey, it's like building his house on a rock. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we have already have, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very clear that the foundation that we're supposed to build the life, uh, any of our lives on, is that of Jesus. And we are constantly stepping up to fight this battle to help students get planted. Now, I want to show you why it's so important that students get planted. And not just students, but kids, adults, it doesn't matter who you are. So, y'all don't make fun of my puzzles, okay? I got three different puzzles here. Here's how the world works, okay? So, obviously, we cannot, as communicators and as pastors and as preachers, cannot communicate everything all at one time in one setting. So, we like to do what you call series. And over the course of a series, we're trying to to paint a picture of a completed puzzle to help you to understand a perspective about who God is. And so when you come each and every single week, what happens throughout the course of a message is you get a few of the pieces to that puzzle. And then you get to take that home with you. And so you have more understanding than what you did originally have. But guess what? There's still some holes to be filled in there, right? And when you come back the next week, guess what happens? We find out and we give you another piece of that puzzle. And then as you go home and you spend personal time with God, having your devotional time, reading the devotional, praying, worshiping, talking to God, reading scripture, God begins to work it out where you begin to figure out how to hook the pieces together week after week after week until all of a sudden, before you know it, you've got an entire puzzle that's completely put together and you're like, Oh my gosh, I now see God clearly for who he is about this particular issue. But here's what happens, and here's what I've experienced in student ministry. Is we have students come for one, one message, and so they get a little piece. And then here's what happens. The next week, something pops up. Baseball. 
soccer. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get in trouble. So they miss a week. They miss that puzzle piece. And then the next week, it's like, you know what? I need to go to church. And then it's like, you know what? I like this girl over here, so I'm going to go to that church. And guess what's going on at that church? An entirely different series. And guess what ends up happening? They get a few pieces to that puzzle. Then they miss another week because something else pops up. And then they come back to me. And then guess what? We've moved on to another series trying to print another perspective of, for them who, who God really is. And so then they get a few pieces to that puzzle. And then here's what we have now in our generation. And in the next generation. We have a generation growing up with a whole lot of little bits and pieces of who God is. But guess what? This piece doesn't match up with this piece. And they're all confused. And they're like, what, what is going on with God? And like, is God like bipolar? Like, who is he? Is he good? Is he bad? What's going on? And they have all these questions and they're confused to the point where they get frustrated and they say, you know what? God's not real. God doesn't exist. There's no sense in doing that. It's stupid. It makes no sense. And they are leaving the church in droves and it could all be stopped if we would just rise up and say, you know what? We are going to fight for this next generation and we're gonna make sure that they have a foundation that they know that Jesus loves them so much that he stepped down out of heaven and he gave up his divine rights as God and walked this earth as a man and as God and he lived a sinless life while he was here and he became the perfect sacrifice for their sins so that they could be forgiven of all of them when he died and sacrificed himself on the cross and when he uttered the words, it is finished and then proved in fact that he was God and rose again from the dead that this is the God that you can build your life on upon your foundation and when you have that relationship with him and you act in faith and you act in obedience to those things that it doesn't matter what's in front of you that what the world might look like because when God's on your side guess what it does not matter because who can be against you when God's with you the other day my wife was getting her hair cut and I was at home and I was doing some laundry, and my son was playing in the, the living room. And my son, you know, he just turned six, and he loves playing football. And he will run back and forth across our house, literally tossing the football up to himself and catching it and saying, oh, and he's a Razorback fan, so he's like, Arkansas intercepted the ball and ran it back for a touchdown, you know. And I'm doing laundry the other day, and I'm, I'm folding it and everything, and all of a sudden, like, I'm hearing him kind of mess around in the living room playing football, and I hear him like wipe out, like he ate it. And you know, as a parent, if you've ever been in the other room when, you're, when your kid gets hurt, there's like mixed emotions that go on with you in that moment. At first you hear it and you're like, oh, that did not sound good, right? And then the next thought that hits your mind, you're like, do I go, do I not go? Like, do I run in there and panic? Cause I don't know what I'm gonna see. He might have his head busted open, broken arm, who knows, you know? You're like, or do I wait, right, and see what happens? And so I play the card. I'm like, I'm going to wait, you know. I'll let mom go rescue him immediately. I'll toughen him up a little bit, you know. He's my son, right? 
And so I'm waiting and I'm expecting to hear him crying. And I can hear his feet run across the, the living room. And I'm expecting him to come and run to me. But he doesn't ever show up. And so I'm like, okay, he must be fine. And so I go back to what I'm doing. And then a few minutes later, I hear him crying ever so faintly. I'm like, see, I better go check on him. So I go to the living room where he's playing. And I don't find him there. Uh, I hear him crying and find, come to find out he, was, he had ran to his bedroom. And he's laying on the floor and they're crying. So I go in there. I sit down beside him on the floor. Talk to him. Make sure he's okay and everything. And then at the very end of our conversation, I look at him. Because the whole time I'm like confused. I'm like, if you're hurt, how come you didn't come running to your father that loves you and that would help you in this moment? And so I wanted to make this a teachable moment with my son. And so I took a moment after I got him all better and stopped crying and wiped his tears. And I said, son, I just want you to know something. I want you to know that your daddy loves you very much. And if you're ever hurt or you ever need something, I don't ever want you to run away from me. I want you to run to me. I give him a big hug, and he says, okay, Dad, and everything, and I take that moment. But I share that with you to point this out to you, that that is such a picture of this next generation, that they literally have wiped out and ate it and are hurting right now, but they don't know who to run to to help them. And as a result, they are running out to the world by the droves, and they are crying themselves, trying to figure out what's going to help fix them and what's going to help help them. And we as a church need to be those people that don't say, hey, come to me, but we go to them and we find them right where they're at and say, hey, we love you and God loves you. And guess what? You're broken right now, but because we serve a good God that loves you, he's, he can put the pieces all back together that, hey, guess what? He can heal you right now in this moment, but you've got to come with him and we will show you the way on how to do that. And we will model for you what obedience to Jesus looks like. And I see some great things in you that you may not even see in yourself. And I promise you there's things that God has entrusted for you to do if you'll just be obedient to and begin to operate in the faith that God gives you. But it's going to take us being willing to step out and to fight for that foundation instead of just turning them loose to the world. So here's what I want you to do. I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And in this moment, I want you just to begin to open up your heart to God. And I'm going to ask that you do a few things. The first thing that I'm going to ask that you do is just begin to pray for this next generation. And not just pray for this next generation, but pray for us as a church. Pray for the student ministries. Pray for this community and the students of it. Pray for our youth leaders. But also, I'm going to ask that in this moment, you open up your heart and you allow God to deal with you as far as how you see this next generation. And if there are students in middle school and high school that you've completely written off, I'm gonna ask that you just repent of it. And you ask God to forgive you. And you ask God to give you a healthy and godly perspective of the next generation. not only that, I'm going to ask that if you're struggling to reach them, that you just begin to pray for opportunities. 
to be a light to them. To reach them right where they're at, whether that's taking a younger person that you work with to lunch, whether that's serving, whatever it might be. That you would just begin to tell God in this moment in your heart that God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Whenever you want me to do it, however you want me to do it.